Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word. We pray this evening that we would understand what the Bible is saying to us, that we would recognise your great plan of salvation, and that you would help us to not be conceited, but to be humble and thankful before you because of your extraordinary mercy towards us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was teaching some evening lectures in theology over at, uh, in Chatswood, on the other side of Chatswood there. And one night, as I was walking up to the lectures, I saw one of the students. We got talking, and I said, uh, where do you come from? He said, oh, from Long Bay. So I didn't realise that was a suburb. He said, it's not a suburb, it's a jail. He said, uh, they, they give me leave to attend this course. He then went on to tell me about how he got converted, became a Christian while he was in jail. The conversation went on for a while and I said, so uh, what are you in for? And he said, I, uh, I killed a bloke. I didn't say anything at the time, but I've got to say, it, it rocked me a little bit. I thought, wow, imagine a murderer becoming a Christian. God's been really gracious to someone like that. A bit later, I thought about my reaction, and I realised what I was doing. I was thinking that God had been more merciful to him than to me. I thought I was better than him, that I deserve salvation more, that I'm a more appropriate candidate to be a Christian. A few years ago, there was a story, about, uh, a story in the papers about a chaplain who went to visit Martin Bryant, you know, the Port Arthur massacre guy. The chaplain went to tell Martin Bryant about Jesus. And there was uproar. People said, how dare you tell him about Jesus? How disgraceful that such a person like Martin Bryant could ever become a Christian. How terrible the idea that God could ever forgive Martin Bryant. Same way of thinking, isn't it? People assume that they are better. That that, uh, they deserve to be a Christian more than Martin Bryant does. That there may be nicer people or more moral people or I can't see into your heart but I bet that you're like me in this because you're all really nice people and deep down you think you're really nice people you think that you are better candidates for being a Christian than other people you think you're the sort of person who could be a Christian Who should be a Christian? Are you like me in this? Is that what you think? Do you think you deserve to be saved more than Martin Bryant? Or that murderer who did my course? You think God got a a, a better deal when he saved you? After all, you've done so much for him. Well, over the last few months, as we've been looking together in the Bible, we've been looking at the letter to the Romans... And we've seen that it is all about the gospel, the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen that this is good news that can rescue us. First, you remember the first three chapters, we found out that we need to be rescued. All people need to be rescued. All people have sinned. We don't love God. We don't obey God the way he deserves. And God is angry. Chapter 1 tells us that God's wrath is coming onto the godlessness and wickedness of humanity. 
But the great news we saw in chapter 3 is that Jesus has died on the cross as a sacrifice. He died in our place to bear the consequences in himself of our sin. He paid the full price for our sin. And so God raised him from the dead. And now, as a free gift from God, we can be forgiven. With the price for our sin fully paid on the cross, we can be declared right with God. We can be rescued from God's anger. And all we need to do, and now flowing particularly into chapter 4, all we need to do is to accept God's gift. And the way we do that is very simple. We rely on Jesus. We depend on Jesus. It is by what the Bible calls faith alone. And then in Romans 5 to 8, we've seen some of the great benefits of being a Christian. When we trust in Jesus, we have peace with God. The war with God is over. We don't fear condemnation from God. We receive God's Holy Spirit. We become God's children. We become heirs of God's eternal, glorious kingdom. We have reason to live for God now, power to live for God now. And we have a sure hope for eternity before us. It really is great news, this gospel. God has loved us through Jesus and there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. That is the great news, the great assurance of Romans chapters 1 to 8. But then in Romans chapter 9, we, we faced an objection, didn't we? It's got to do with whether we can trust what God says. See, when it all boils down, the whole of chapters 1 to 8 comes down to God's word. It is God's word that tells us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and not just as some historical accident. It is God's word that tells us when we rely on Jesus, we'll be forgiven. We'll have a place in glory. It all comes back to what God has promised, to his word. But the thing is, we're not the first people who've received God's word. God made promises in the Old Testament as well, promises to Israel, to the Jewish people. God promised that he would be Israel's God. He promised that they would be his people. He promised that he would bless them and save them. But one of the sad facts of the gospel is that most Israelites are not accepting Jesus. And so despite all of the promises that God has made, despite God's word to them, they will not be saved. And so the question that arises is this. Has God given up on his promises? Has he changed his mind about Israel? Can God be trusted? Has his word to Israel failed? That's an important question, remember, although it may not be a question that you've thought about before these last few weeks. But it is an important question for us as Christians because, remember, our confidence is based on God's word. And if God's word can fail, if we can't trust what God says, then we have no confidence, no assurance. But Paul's been very clear about it, hasn't he? God's word has not failed. And he's given us four arguments to prove his case. Now, here's me trying to be very technological and, uh, and modern. I've tried to put them uh, on the screen in a picture for you. Thank you very much to Ian Young, who has drawn this for us. So here's the point. The point is in the middle. God's word has not failed. God's word is strong, powerful. Now, argument number one is up in the top there. Argument number one is uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 29. And uh, you can see it's, it's, uh, it's about God choosing one person and not the other. Now the point is this. 
Being a physical descendant of Israel has never been a guarantee of salvation. If you look through the Old Testament, you can see that God has always been a God who chooses his people. And he chooses purely on the basis of his mercy. And he will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. So here's the argument. God's word to Israel has not failed because in the gospel, God is doing what he's always done. He is choosing whom he wants to have mercy on. The second argument is up here. And this one focuses more on Israel's responsibility. You can see in the picture that God is still offering to save Israel. He's holding out his hands to Israel, wanting them to come and be saved. But many Israelites have made the informed and responsible decision to reject God's salvation. God's offer of salvation. They are trying to establish their own righteousness through the law and so they won't accept God's free gift of righteousness through Jesus. So here's the argument. God's word to Israel has not failed because in the gospel, God is still offering to save Israel. He gave Jesus to die so they can be saved. He's holding out his hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. He's offering to save Israel. His word hasn't failed. It's argument two. Argument number three is down here. And it's about Jewish Christians, people like Paul himself. Jewish Christians are evidence that God actually still is saving Israelites. And if they are only a minority of Israel, well, that's nothing new. It often happened in the Old Testament that God would only save a remnant of Israel. And that's what this picture shows us. You've got your little happy remnant here and your... Hardened majority there. So here's the argument. God's word to Israel has not failed because in the gospel, God is still saving Israelites. See the triple argument so far? God's word to Israel hasn't failed. He's still choosing who he wants. God's word to Israel hasn't failed. He's still offering to save Israelites. God's word to Israel hasn't failed. He still is saving Israelites. And so we come to argument number four. Thanks, Warren. We started to look at argument number four uh, last week. And in our passage tonight, we'll we'll finish the argument and finish chapter 11. It's got to do with God's continuing plan to save Israel. Now, the argument begins in Romans chapter 11 and verse 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Paul asks the question, is God finished with Israel? Are they now beyond hope? Romans chapter 11 and verse 11. Again, I ask... Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Has God finished with them? Paul says, no way. Verse 11 again, not at all. And then he tells us God's great gospel plan. Back in the Old Testament, only Israel was saved. The Gentiles were disobedient to God, in no relationship with God. But now God has sent Jesus. Most of Israel reject Jesus. They transgress in this way. And through their transgression, the gospel goes out to the whole world. As Israel rejected, it then gets spread out to the Gentiles. But that's not the end of God's plan. Through the Gentiles, God plans that the gospel will come back to Israel. It's a plan based on what God said back in Deuteronomy 32, our first reading. The idea that God would make Israel envious by a nation who are not a nation. That's what Paul says God is doing here. Israel get envious, will get envious as the gospel goes out to Gentiles, as Gentiles get saved, and they'll want their salvation back again. And so they'll come to faith in Jesus. Look at the plan. Verse 11 again. Not at all. Rather, 
Because of Israel's transgression, rejecting Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles, and notice why, to make Israel envious. That's the plan. Gentiles get saved through Jews. They get the benefits of the Jewish Messiah based on God's promises to the Jews through the rejection of the Jews. But then Jews get saved through Gentiles. They see Gentiles get saved. That leads them back to their own Messiah. Can I say this is true in my experience as a Jewish Christian? God saved me through this plan. It was Gentiles who told me about Jesus. The only thing that Jews had to do with my becoming a Christian was saying, don't do it. It was Gentiles who shared the gospel with me. It was Gentiles who exemplified the gospel in such a way that I wanted to become a Christian. What can I say? I'm really grateful. I'm grateful to God for his plan. He hasn't given up on me. I'm grateful to the Gentiles who shared the gospel with me and who loved me and looked after me. And it's true of pretty much every Jewish Christian I know. They all came to faith in the way set out here in the Bible. They came to faith through Gentiles, sharing the gospel with them. So there's God's plan. A beautiful plan, a plan through which thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews have been saved over this last 2,000 years. Israel reject the gospel, it goes out to the Gentiles, but then it comes back to Israel through the Gentiles. There's the plan. Last week, Paul then turned to his Gentile readers, you remember, um, and, and he reminded them that they are joining in Israel's salvation. They're like, uh, they're like wild branches grafted into an olive tree. And so Gentile Christians, he says, must never boast over Israel and must never be arrogant towards God. But tonight we're going to see a beautiful twist on the plan as we see from this plan that nobody can be arrogant towards anybody and nobody can be arrogant towards God. And so finally, that brings us to tonight's passage. The introduction is over. Get ready for the sermon. Verse 25, Paul addresses the brothers. Now, I take it he's now talking to the whole church, to Jews and Gentiles within the church. And he tells us why he is revealing God's great plan to us. Can you see it there in verse 25? It's so we won't be conceited. So we won't think about how clever we are and how wise we are. Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. That's why he's telling us. Now, just by the way, don't get confused about that word mystery, will you? Um, It doesn't mean mysterious, spooky, twilight zone sort of thing. It just means that God's plan was previously a secret. Nobody knew that God was going to do this Jew-Gentile Jew thing uh, until he actually did it. Paul then reminds us what the plan is. Israel get partially hardened, they reject the gospel, it goes out to the Gentiles, they have their chance, and that is the way that God saves Israel. Israel gets saved through Gentiles. Verse 25 again. Don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so you won't be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part, okay, rejecting the gospel, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so, that is, in this way, through the coming in of the Gentiles, In this way, so all Israel will be saved. See the plan again? Now, of course, when Paul says all Israel here, he doesn't mean every single Israelite ever. 
Not every Israelite is going to trust in Jesus and be saved. But he's talking about this is the way God is keeping his promises to all Israel, to, to the Israel that he's promised to be saved. He, he's saying this is the way all, all Israelites will get saved. This is the way God is saving his people. It's through this plan that he's keeping his promises. And then he goes on to quote a couple of the promises that, that God makes to save Israel. Uh, the sort of promises that God is fulfilling in and through this plan. He quotes from the Old Testament from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. There in verse 26 again. He says, so in this way, through the, through the Gentiles, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and here are some promises, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll turn godlessness away from Jacob. Jacob, you know, is another name for Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here it is, God promised to save Israel in the Old Testament with promises like this. And now, can you see, through this plan, he's doing it. God's word has not failed. God promised to save Israel and through this plan, all Israel that he's promised to save, all the Israel who are his chosen people, all the Israel who he's going to save will be saved. He promised to do it and now through the plan he is doing it. His word has not failed. Then in the next verses, Paul reminds the church again, God loves the Jews. The Jews continue to be special to God. They might reject the gospel. They might even oppose gospel ministry. But God's Old Testament promises to them still stand. God's promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they still stand. They haven't been revoked. They cannot be revoked. Why? Because God keeps his promises. His word cannot fail. Verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God hasn't changed his mind. His word hasn't failed. He still loves the Jews. He's still saving Israel and he's doing it through this plan. But it's at this point that Paul clobbers us. It's at this point that Paul reveals why God is doing it this way. You see, the thing about God's plan is this. It doesn't leave room for anyone to be conceited. Nobody can boast that they're better than anyone else. And no one can boast before God. Under this plan, all the glory goes to God. Verse 30 you can see it's true of the Gentiles. They were once disobedient to God under the Old Testament. They, they, they weren't God's people. They got to hear the gospel because Israel rejected it. So they must never be conceited. Not towards Jews and not towards God. Verse 30, you Gentiles who were at one time disobedient to God under the Old Testament have now received mercy as a result of Israel's disobedience. Gentile Christians can't be conceited. But then we get the, 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 the beautiful twist, the master stroke. Under this plan, Israel can't be conceded either. Israel have also been disobedient. They've rejected their own Messiah. They've lost the benefit of God's promises by their stubborn unbelief. And now in this stunning twist, Israel is getting saved through the Gentiles. Look at verse 30 again. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience... So they too, the Jews, have now become disobedient, rejecting Jesus, 
in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you, Gentiles. You see the plan again? I think in our culture we don't get how shocking this is. I think we don't get what an absolute slap in the face this is for the Jewish people. But, but think about this. In that culture, a Jew would not eat with a Gentile. A Jew would not talk to a Gentile if they could avoid it. You see that in John chapter 4, don't you, with the Samaritan woman. You know, if, if a Jew had happened to accidentally touch a Gentile, you know what they would have done? They'd have gone straight away and washed themselves. Israel thought they were better than everyone else. Israel went on and on about being God's chosen special people. Israel wouldn't associate with the Gentiles. And now they're getting saved through the Gentiles they despise. Sorry to reveal uh, where I am in life at the moment, but uh, the Reverend W. Audrey revealed this in one of the first stories that he wrote about uh, in the Thomas the Tank Engine series. As a very proud engine by the name of Gordon. Uh, Gordon despises uh, this lowly engine called Edward. But uh, during the course of the story, Gordon gets stuck and Edward has to save him. And so Gordon is humbled as he is rescued by this engine that he despises. It's a delicious irony. The Jews are getting saved through the Gentiles that they won't even eat with. And it means they've got nothing to be conceited about. Not before Gentiles. They've just got to be thankful to the Gentiles. And certainly not before God. And so Paul summarises. And we see just the, the brilliance of God's plan. In this plan, everyone is disobedient. Jew, Gentile, everyone. In this plan, everyone relies just on God's mercy and nothing else. Verse 32. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. I reckon this is just beautiful. Nobody can be conceited under this plan. It doesn't matter who you are. You're no better than anybody. You are disobedient, and if you're a Christian, it's just because God had mercy on you. All the glory goes to God here. No glory to you or to me. What we are is just beggars on God's mercy, bludgers on God's mercy, all the glory is for him. And so appropriately, Paul finishes by giving glory to God. God's the one who made up this stunning plan, didn't get any help from anybody else. And so Paul praises God for his wisdom, verse 33. Ah, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? God invented the plan and through the plan he's made it clear again. He doesn't owe anyone squat. No one deserves to be saved. No one has any claim on God. It's all about his mercy. To him be the glory. Verse 35. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that brings this section to an end. There's argument number four. God's great gospel plan. And so we come to the end of Romans 9 to 11. 
let's, let's, let's just pull back one more time since I've got this nice picture here tonight and let's, let's look at Romans 9 to 11 as a whole. Thank you. Has God's word to Israel failed? Answer, no way. It is strong. Argument number one. God has always been free to choose his people. See the happy person being chosen there. Argument number two. God is still offering to save stubborn and rebellious Israel. Argument number three. God is saving Israel. He's saving the remnant of Jewish Christians. And here, argument number four, he's showing us how God is saving Israel. The gospel goes from Israel to the Gentiles, from the Gentiles back to Israel again. This is the way God is keeping his promises. And why? We've seen it tonight. So no one can be conceited before man or God. So all the glory goes to him for his mercy. Thanks. It's fascinating stuff, don't you reckon? I reckon it is. And it's great news, isn't it? Romans 9 to 11 is fabulous news. Our God keeps his promises. His word is strong. His promises, lovely word, I love this word, his promises are irrevocable. And so we can be sure. No, uh, no doubts about it. No fears about it. No, I hope God doesn't change his mind on judgment day about it. God says, trust in Jesus and you are forgiven. You are at peace with me. You are my child. You have my Holy Spirit. You are destined for glory. And nothing can separate you from my love. And when he says it to you, you can believe him. His word has not failed. His word will not fail. His promises are irrevocable. It's beautiful. But let me finish by just reminding us of the lesson of God's great plan here. See, there is only one way to be a Christian. And it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter how tall or short or fat or thin or smart or stupid you are. It doesn't matter how nice you are. There's only one way to be a Christian. And that is through God's sheer mercy. We've got to get out of our heads any concept that for any reason we are any better than anybody else. We've got to get out of our heads any concept that in any way we deserve God's mercy. We've got to get out of our heads the notion that we are better candidates to be Christians than anybody else. That murderer I was telling you about, he's saved through God's mercy. and No doubt about it, but then so am I. If Martin Bryant becomes a, becomes a Christian, that'll be, God's, that'll be God's complete mercy. But then... That's the only way you can be saved as well. And if we start thinking any other way, if we start thinking that we are somehow better or we somehow deserve to be Christians, well, we need to call that what it is. We need to call that what the Bible calls it. It's called conceit. That's what it's called, conceit. And there is no place for conceited Christians There is no place for holier-than-thou Christians. God has saved you because he is merciful. All of the glory of the gospel goes to God. As for you and me, we need to be very humble and we need to be very thankful. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, all glory to you. You are the God who has had mercy on us all. You are the God who has so structured this plan of salvation that all the glory is yours. You are incredibly wise, incredibly merciful, magnificently glorious. Our Father, we confess that we are utterly undeserving of salvation. We thank and praise you so much for your mercy. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll help us to recognise our equality with all people as disobedient beggars on your mercy and help us never to be anything but humble and thankful to you. Our Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.